Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Bienvenidos, señoras y señores, to the Bleed Los podcast. Uh, we're going to be doing an edition, a special edition of the Carne Asada here. Uh, but before we bring on our guests, uh, let's take care of some business here. Uh, basketball is back, and Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting needs this season. You're going to find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends on Bet Online. And as your continued source for all your sports wagering information, Bet Online features live betting, free contests, and giveaways all season long. It's always the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports and events, whether it's the NFL, NBA, NHL, MMA, tennis, boxing, even golf. So head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure you use the promo code BELIEVE. That's B L E A V to receive your rewards. Bet online where the game starts. And joining us on the Kanyasada this week is the author of a brand new book, Jim Alexander. And the name of the book is Dodgers with an exclamation point an informal history from Flash from Flatbush to Chavez Ravine. Jim, thanks for joining us. How are you? How you been? It is my pleasure. I'm doing well. I'm I'm doing better than the uh, the subject of the book is doing right now. But hey, that's October baseball. And, and for those of you, Jim also covers um, he covers many sports. He's a columnist. So not only is he the author of the book, and we're going to get into the book, but we're also going to be talking about what just happened to the Dodgers. And I know a lot of you that listen to the show have told us that you guys aren't ready. You haven't listened to our past episodes where we bitch and moan about what happened to the Dodgers. But I think Jim's going to be a great guest because his book is going to be able to show you what I've been arguing all along is this happens to them all the time and we should be used to this by now. We should not be upset. Jim, let me ask you this. There are many books on, on the Dodgers. I mean, it seems everyone wants to write about this team. What made you want to write your book? Well, it's, it's sort of weird the, the way it worked, the, the way it developed, because I was, you know, I've been writing columns for a lot of years, and I was thinking, well, you know, maybe I can do a compilation of columns or something and try and sell that as a book. And I'm sitting in the back of the family car, okay? This is weird the way it worked. We're on a family trip going up to uh, Oregon to see one of our daughters. I'm sitting in the back seat. I've got my iPad out. I'm kind of I'm going through stuff. I'm trying to figure out, well, what's, what's, what's going to sell? What, what might work? And I'm going through some of my Lasorda stuff because I've written countless columns on Tommy over the years. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, you know, I could go in a different direction with this. And the more I started looking at it and the more I started digging into the history, the more fascinating it became. And I, I, that, was, that was kind of the outgrowth of this, that there's such a rich history here. And no one had really ever written a book encompassing all of the history from book. Brooklyn in 1883 
up through the end of last year. I mean, obviously, it's it's no longer the entire history because it was published in July. Uh, the final manuscript was uh, submitted three days after the end of the Brave series last year. So it doesn't include 2022, but everything from 1883 up through 2021. Uh, and And really, the more I dug into like the 1880s stuff, for example. And then, you know, the autobiography or the biographies of Zach Weed and, and uh, Dazzy Vance and, and some of the greats in Brooklyn and, and, and the, the boys of summer teams and all that. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's a fascinating history. This is a franchise that has really been in the middle of a lot of, of things in major league baseball over the years. And, and there are some recurring themes, which we'll get to. Uh, but I just had a lot of fun researching it and writing it. So I hope people buy it and I hope they have as much fun reading it as I had writing it. Well, I, I definitely have some, I want to get into the Brooklyn era with you, but before I do that, Jim, you mentioned Lasorda. And, and you said that you have a lot of columns that you had written on Tommy. I mean, I'm sure it was really hard because you could probably write a whole book on, on Tommy and especially all the stories that people have about Lasorda. There was a recent exhibit, and I don't know if you got to see it. I think it's still there, actually, as a matter of fact, at the Fullerton Museum. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very small exhibit. I wish it, it was bigger and you could, but it does have some interesting um, uh, features and uh, on Lasorda do you have a, a favorite Lasorda story or is there a story of Lasorda that didn't make the book that just killed you I mean editing cutting the baby probably is the hardest thing to do isn't it Jim yes it is yes it is but fortunately my edit fortunately my publisher was indulgent because the book came in at around 205,000 words and as I was pitching it most of the responses I got were, well, this doesn't really fit our format or it's too long or what have you. So I'm, I'm glad that McFarland was indulgent enough to, to let me st stretch it out. But getting back to Tommy, um, my favorite anecdote in the whole book and Tommy, Tommy is this, Tommy was a fascinating individual in a lot of ways, but the whole thing about Tommy is America's guest and, you know, making restaurateurs his lifelong friends was the anecdote about Charlie Gito's in St. Louis. Now, when you're covering the club, you know, every trip to St. Louis, oh, they're, they're going to spend time at Charlie Gito's before they go out to the ballpark. Well, that was not an exaggeration. I ran across a story that AP did years back. When, the talking to the owner of the restaurant, Charlie Gito, of course, and he was talking about how Lasorda would come in. He would co always come in with an entourage, okay? And he had a special table that he would sit at. He would have a phone at the <laughs> at the table. I don't know who he'd be who he'd be calling, but they'd have a phone at the table and everything, and that was reserved for him. It'd be back in a corner of the restaurant. He said that. Tommy would order a salad, but he would sample from everybody else's plate. And at the end of the day, he would have eaten more than anybody else. So, <laughs> and that, that's Tommy. I mean, he was, he was larger than life. 
I like to say he was baseball's last celebrity manager. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't imagine that anybody with that kind of personality and profile and, and whatever would even exist in today's game where the front office is the star and the manager is just the guy hired to implement the, the front office's vision. Um, I, and, and this is another story that I enjoyed. Um, it's from John Streggy, who most recently worked for Golf Digest, but he covered the Dodgers for the Register for years and was on the Tommy beat, as most of us were. There was a series in Pittsburgh. I don't remember what year this was, but during that time, the Dodgers had an advanced scout named Charlie Metro. So he would go a couple series before the Dodgers would get there. He'd be in town and he'd, he'd scout that team. He'd leave the scouting report for when the Dodgers got to town. So Tommy gets into the visiting manager's office in Pittsburgh. And he sees this big manila envelope on his desk. And it, it, I guess it had written on there, Pirates Scouting Report, what have you. Tommy takes one look at it, picks it up, throws it in the trash can. Can you imagine that happening now? <laughs> can you imagine Tommy with iPads in the dugout? <laughs> no, I think I think if Tommy was imagining uh, managing now, he wouldn't be managing the Dodgers for twenty years. Uh, that's for sure. I think yeah. he'd probably go the way of Sosha. Uh, it's been reported that Sosha absolutely hated the analytics a- aspect of it, and I think to be a manager now in baseball, you have to somewhat embrace, and maybe not a hundred percent, but you have to embrace that it has become a, a part of the sport. Uh, Jim, when you when you're when you're researching a book like this, like you mentioned that the Dodgers pretty much have played a seminal role in a lot of historical uh, events in the history of baseball. Uh, with Tommy, like for example, with Tommy, everybody loves Tommy, but there are some Tommy detractors. I mean, there's a lot of people will who blame Tommy for the end of Valenzuela's career the way Valenzuela was used. And so there are mm-hmm. some people that don't share the same enthusiasm as Tommy. When you're reporting, uh, writing a book like this, do you self-edit yourself in terms of, ooh, should I put this in, in the book? Because if I put it in the book, I know this is going to make some people unhappy. Or is it the journalist in you that says, I have to tell the truth? It's the latter. I I can't... <laughs> I can't leave stuff out just because somebody would be offended. I mean, I'm sure there were people that were offended by all the f bombs that were <laughs> that were were in the uh, the unedited versions of Tommy's rants, and I made sure I got the I made sure I published those and published the entire text so people would understand. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you know I'm I'm not I can't censor those. And and there were some things in that chapter. You know, Tommy was Tommy was larger than life, and Tommy was an ambassador for baseball. But there were some parts of Tommy that, you know, behind the scenes that weren't quite so gracious. And and I got to put those in. I mean, part of what I part of how I approached this was I did not want to lean too much on the Dodgers. As it turned out, I didn't really lean on them at all. I did ask him for some photos and. The price was so exorbitant. I said, "Okay, not going to do that." So, <laughs> but but I, 
this this was an independently researched, edited, written account because I you know I'm a professional journalist. I work for one of I, I work for a chain of eleven newspapers that covers the team regularly. I am a columnist, so I write about them frequently. So I do have to keep that distance. I mean, there were there there have been people who say, well, why don't you talk to the Dodgers and see if they'll help promote this book? And okay, maybe I could do that, but I feel like I'd be giving up some of my independence and some of my objectivity. And I can't do that. I mean, I, I've tried to keep my distance. I think I sent Joe Davis a, a copy of the book, but that's about it. Um, and and, and I, I just, I could not, I could not in good conscience self-edit or leave stuff out that might make people unhappy. I couldn't do that. And joining us on the show is is Jim Alexander, who's the author of this new book, Dodgers, an informal history from Flatbush to Chavez Ravine. Uh, Jim, uh, let's go back to those Brooklyn days. I, I, I mean, look, I had later on in life, I mean, when I, when I became a Dodger fan, it was always as an L.A. Dodger fan. And I had heard the stories of Brooklyn. And I, later on, you know, thanks to Vin, and, and I, I think maybe we kind of have to start with Vin, right? Thanks mm -hmm. to Vin being able to relay all that information, the fact that the Dodgers started off as the Brooklyn Robins, and then how the Dodgers got the name of of uh, the Trolley Dodgers, you know, is what they were. I mean, you're going back to to the late 1800s, Jim. How do you how do you still get information in about Brooklyn, considering a, a lot of the oral histories that we have about Brooklyn? We're starting to lose them. That's true. I mean, there there have been a number of books written about those days. Uh, there was one, was Ron, uh, Ronald Schaefer wrote a book about the 1880s teams, especially 1888, 1889, 1890, uh, who, who played in the World Series, <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to the World Series, but we'll get into that later. But yeah, I mean, a lot of it is is print history, published history. You have to go back and dig. You have to go back and look for it. But there's a treasure trove of stuff there. And just looking at this stuff and looking at the way the game was played in the 1880s and 1890s, it was it was so different from the way it's played now. And, and I find myself thinking, what would it have been like to be a fan in, in those days, to watch this game, to see how, how the game was played? And, it, it, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting question. You know, or even, even the 1940s and 1950s, the boys' of summer teams, the, the, one, the, the team that finally won a world championship in 1955. And I told somebody a while back when we were talking about the current team while they were blitzing the, the rest of the National League, and I'm thinking, this must have been what it was like in 1955 when the Brooklyn Dodgers, after all those near misses, were blitzing everybody en route to the World Series. As it turned out, it didn't quite, it didn't quite reach that point with this club, but... 
it makes you you kind of imagine what it was like in Ebbets Field on a night on a nightly basis with those teams and and with such uh, you know big names and 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 legendary players. Uh, it it had to have been a deal where you're watching this and you're thinking, I'm seeing history being made, and maybe that's what we'll think about this team some year some years from now. We'll see. You know, it's, it's it's interesting that you bring that. You you took me where I wanted to go, Jim. And the, par- the the parallels of 1955 and this 2022 team. I I was telling our audience that after the Dodgers got eliminated by the show pods, I was just like, look, this is what it must have felt like to be a Brooklyn Dodger fan. You asked the question, what it would have felt like to see those teams and be a fan back in those days. Look, the Brooklyn Dodger fans suffered. I mean. They're, they were referred to as the bums, were they not? Weren't they? The, the, mm-hmm. They were the bums. I mean, these were fans that would go out there and root for their team and see them constantly lose to the Yankees or, or the Giants would break their heart. I mean, that's all this team. Before 1955, that's all this team knew was was heartache. Exactly. Uh, what can you tell me about uh, it, 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 is the, is it justified to have an affinity for those uh, those Brooklyn Dodger fans because they know my pain? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there there was such loyalty and such. There, I I told the story in the book of the 1941 World Series and the drop third strike that. Uh, allowed the Yankees to win a game, and eventually the Yankees won the series. And Mickey Owen, the catcher, dropped the third strike. He got a handwritten note from a kid who sympathized with him and, and I guess told his mother, I figured Mickey Owen needed some cheering up. And Mickey Owen kept that letter in his back pocket during the next day's game. And he came to the plate the next day and he got a standing ovation from the Brooklyn crowd. You know, in the, the Brooklyn fans, if anybody else slurred one of their players, then it was on. They were going to fight. But they could call them bums because they were their bums. <laughs> so, let, let me ask you this, Jim. In, in, in situations like this, when you, when you go back to, to, to those Brooklyn days and – and you sit there, and when you write this book, did you find that history repeated itself often? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. And sign stealing yeah. is one, one example. And we are living it again because the Houston Astros are back in the World Series. And there's, there's no reason to believe that there are any bats and trash cans and monitors involved, but you know, that team has a history, but you go back to 2017 and I kind of document, especially the Kershaw start in game five and, and the way, uh, you know, the Astros hitters kept spitting at the slider rather than swinging at it. You go back to 1951, you go back to the, uh, the, uh, telescope in center field and the, uh, the uh, phone system that was rigged up that uh, enabled Giants hitters to see to to know what was coming, um, and I tie that back to the eighteen nineties, the eighteen eighties, 
And Bill McGonigal, who was the manager, and he was very good at sign stealing with, you know, the, the original method of sign stealing with your wits and your eyes and what have you. But he was trying to figure out a way to mechanically steal signs and make sure his players knew what was coming. So <laughs> this is, it's part of baseball. It's gone back a long way. But when you, when you do it where nobody is expecting it, it's a little more despicable. And I think you know, the, the Houston Astros organization will be tainted for years by this. Uh, you know, there's, there's still four guys on that team that were part of that 19 or the part of the 2017 team. And, you know, as long as they're there, this team's going to get booed because 2017 is going to be on everybody's minds for a long time. Jim, do you buy this? I feel like there's a narrative that is starting to get woven uh, about that the Astros can redeem themselves with, by winning a World Series this year. But hearing you, it feels like you're still going to have a, a number of fans who are going to say, it doesn't matter, you guys still cheated. Like you mentioned, there's four guys on that team that that were on that 2017 team. Yeah, there's a conundrum. And, in fact, I'm going to write about it later this week because you've got Dusty Baker, who is, I mean, everybody loves Dusty. Who doesn't love Dusty? If you don't love Dusty, you don't love ice cream, okay? <laughs> I mean, he's a great, he, he is a wonderful guy. He's, he may be the, the most likable guy in baseball. But he's managing a team that is the most unlike team in baseball. So, you know. You, you, you have to separate the two. You can love Dusty and hate the Astros. <laughs> I'm sure he would disagree with that, and he kind of mildly disagreed with it when he was out here for the All Star Game. But I mean, that's that's the way it is. You're gonna get you're gonna get booed wherever you go, especially if it's New York or Los Angeles, because people understand what was taken from them in, in 2017. You know, I, I want to transition to, you know, growing up into watching the Dodgers, there was a voice that would tell us stories that would teach us about not only the history of the Dodgers, but the history of baseball because he was there and he lived it. And and we lost him this year, and, and that was Vin Scully. Uh, I love to hear the stories. It, it kind of broke my heart, to tell you the truth, to realize that Vin Scully was a Giants fan when he first, you know, took over. Because he felt sorry for him. Because he felt sorry for him. And then it makes perfect sense, right? Like, that's mm -hmm. who Vin Scully is, right? He felt yeah. sorry for him before he started rooting for him. Uh, did you get to talk to many people about Vin Scully? I mean, is this guy really the sacred cow that everyone, or was there something that in your book, Jim, that no one's going to tell us that Vin Scully had a dark side and he really wasn't the guy who we all thought he was? Nope. <laughs> nope. I mean, I I talked to him on numerous occasions. I mean, I, I was able to have like three or four sit downs with him over the years. And I mean, he he is what you saw. I mean, he, he was what you saw. I mean, he, he's a decent, he, he was a decent person. I, I, I keep talking of him in the present tense. I'm sorry. I mean, it's, it's, it's still, the emotions are still kind of raw, but 
I mean, he, he was what you heard. He, he, he was the same guy away from the microphone as he was in front of the microphone. And I think that was one of the tremendous advantages that the Dodger organization had when they got out here. They brought Ben with them and then taught the game, then explained the game, and then also taught the history of the, of the team because he was there, because he saw Jackie Robinson play and Roy Campanella and Duke Snyder and Gil Hodges. And he, beyond anybody else, bridged that gap in a way that other transplanted teams struggled to do. Like, for, for a recent example, I was at the Chargers game yesterday. They honored Jamal Williams, who played nose tackle for the, the team in San Diego for, for 11 years. And really, I'm wondering how many of the people who attend Chargers games in L.A. really have any sort of clue what that was like in San Diego. And they don't have anybody in their organization that can kind of naturally bridge that and explain, well, this is what it was like, et cetera, et cetera. The Dodgers had that with Vin. And that in, that, I think that helped them create a base here in Los Angeles because then could naturally tell stories about that history and get people to understand, you know, what happened in the past sort of leads into what's going on now and what's going to go on in the future. And I think ever, ever since there's been that, that strong connection throughout the entirety of Dodger history. You know, and I think that's why it's important to have books like what you've read in the, in the sense that it keeps the legacy alive of, of, of those that came before us. And I think you bring a very good point up with that char Charger story is, you know, if we don't share these oral histories, if we don't repeat these stories, the stories die and, and eventually mm -hmm. no one's going to know about it. Yeah. So when you, in your book, when you approach the chapter on Jackie Robinson, this is a story that a lot of us know. I mean, there's been movies made about it. It's a very familiar story. Uh, we just had a, a, a director on who had a, direct, a documentary about life after Jackie Robinson on, on the show. How do you approach that, telling that story again from a different angle? And and try to show something to the reader that maybe they didn't know before. I was uncertain how I wanted to approach that because obviously Jackie's entry into Major League Baseball was, was so huge. Um, because it's been written so often in so many ways, and even now there are so many books that come out about Jackie's life and his impact and, and whatnot, that... I, I really did not want to replow that ground. Um, the one thing I wish I could have done, wish I had done, was put it in greater perspective, um, given the fact that the number of blacks, the number of African Americans currently in Major League Baseball is what, 7% now? I mean, it, 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 it reached a peak and then it started going downhill rapidly. So, and I wrote a column about this earlier this year on, on the anniversary of, of Jackie's 
in Jackie's entry into Major League Baseball that this is not exactly doing a whole lot to honor his legacy or to further his legacy. The other thing I'll say, the one thing that I've, I, I found that I don't think a lot of other people have, have talked about, the day he started his Major League career, Brooklyn's playing the Boston Braves at Abbott's Field. And I went back and looked at the New York newspaper's coverage. And to a man, there were like four or five beat writers. All of them underplayed it. I mean, the idea that here was a black man playing Major League Baseball and breaking the color barrier. I don't know if it's that nobody wanted to talk about it that maybe it, it had been discussed in spring training and they'd written stories about that, although I doubt it. But it was like it, it was it was buried in each of these stories that it was like the the bottom third of the story in each case. And, and one of them, and I can't remember which which uh, beat writer it was, referred to him as the colored boy playing first base. <laughs> and I guarantee you now that would be as racist as, as you could imagine. But back then, in what was essentially a racist society, it was sort of that that was kind of the way it was, the way it was. And, and so I thought that was that was tremendously interesting that it was underplayed the way it was. And it reached a point later on where you couldn't ignore it and you wouldn't ignore it. But it was like we're trying to underplay it and 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 hope that people don't notice which is very interesting right because i think that's a pattern in in most sports but i think in base especially in baseball is their their attempts to try to be apolitical and the, the thing is is with the dodgers you can't do that i mean you you mm -hmm. have jackie robinson we're going to transition into this next you know when they left brooklyn and they come to la you have the whole chavez ravine saga Oh yes. And oh yes. I, and I'm and I'm wondering if you found that also in your research that they downplay that. And one of the things I do want to make sure it, it's clear, I, I think the Dodgers get pinned a lot for for what happened at Chavez Ravine, and more so than I think the corrupt government officials that should have been held accountable for what happened at, at Chavez Ravine. The, mm -hmm. uh, making that transition, leaving Brooklyn and, and going to Los Angeles, what what surprised you the most in, in your research and writing this book, Jim? Well, uh, the one the one thing regarding the Chavez Ravine, and and you're correct, this is this was a transition that happened long before anybody even thought of baseball coming here, long before Walter O'Malley even thought of coming to L.A. Uh, it was supposed to be a public housing development. That was the original plan for Chavez Ravine, and they were going to they, – they sent out eviction notices. They were trying to, to, to clear the area to uh, build a public housing development. But there were forces in City Hall that considered that a communist plot, and they weren't going to go along with it. And ultimately, that development died. This is like 1951 or 1952. But those eviction notices were still there, okay? They, they, were, they 
they were still trying to get people out of there. So flash back, flash forward to like 1957, when all of a sudden Walter O'Malley is interested in L.A. and they take him on the helicopter ride over Chavez Ravine, and there's this 350 acres next to downtown L.A. and the idea that you know this could this could be his vision for a ballpark. So all of a sudden they have the uh, they had a referendum. And the ballpark won. So now people are actually being evicted. And there were the, the uh, uh, clips on, on the TV news shows of people being carried out of their houses in the eviction process. And all that did was, was inflame the emotions. Um, and, and as I wrote... Later, as I wrote, O'Malley could have written a check for, you know, the difference, be difference between what the land was worth and what was paid out for it, for what have you. But his feeling was that it was the city father's issue and the city father's should be the one that should make good. So, you know, it, it, it was... That was a wound that I don't think healed with the Latino community until Fernando Mania. And, and, and I want to go there, but I, I also don't want to forget a, a, a very popular age in, in Dodger baseball, and that was the 60s when you, when you had Koufax. So I, I want to talk about the 60s. But going back to, to your point of from – Going from Jackie Robinson, moving out to L.A., and then dealing with the powder keg uh, that was Chavez Ravine. Uh, and it was funny that you, you you had mentioned in your book that you felt like you didn't give it enough perspective in terms of what was going on with Jackie. Again, to me, your book just reminds me of just how history repeats itself if we don't acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. Mookie Betts earlier this year wore a shirt basically stating that he wanted to see more African-Americans play baseball. And I felt exactly what you just said about Jackie Robinson in the New York papers, and they were downplaying it. I don't think that got nearly the coverage that Mookie was probably expecting it to have or that it did deserve to have. Because I, I've brought this up with African-Americans that we've had on the show People have ideas of how to try to get more African-Americans to play baseball. But the problem is, is we just don't have it. I mean, you said 7%. Yeah. And, and in fact, I recently talked to Terrence Moore, who uh, wrote a biography of Hank Aaron. And we were talking about this very point. And he made the, the observation that back in the 80s, he had, he had run across scouting reports on various players, and one of the categories on the scouting report was race. And he did some digging at the time, and he talked to some prominent African-American players, and they were convinced that baseball was trying to limit and reduce the number of African-American players at that time. This was, this was in the 80s. So you, 
flash forward to now where it was 20, 20 some percent at one time, I believe. Now it's 7%. Uh, a lot of those are Latin American players. So I'm not sure what the total racial composi- composition is now. But yeah, it was like there was a concerted effort to reduce the number of blacks in the game. And uh, there are a lot of rationalizations that baseball or, or that football and basketball are more popular in that community. Uh, the idea that college scholarships in baseball are, few, are fewer. It's only 11.7 full scholarships per roster, and most of them are, are divvied up among like 20, 25 players. In fact, talking to Dusty in April when the Astros were out here, and he noted that his son went to Cal, played at Cal, graduated from Cal. And that's not cheap. And, you know, so, and they they had to uh, shoulder a portion of the tuition because he didn't get a full ride. Nobody gets a full ride in baseball. So that's another obstacle. So I don't know. I mean, there's the RBI program, there are the urban academies, there are things that they're trying to do to get more black kids interested. And I don't know how successful they're going to be, how successful they are. It's a start, but it feels like more needs to be done. So so before we transition into the 60s, I, I wanted to ask you one more thing about the, the move to Los Angeles, because with the move to Los Angeles, we also, Vin Scully gets, you know, everybody talks about Vin, everybody loves Vin, Vin's the GOAT, but there was another guy who came at the end of the 50s and the beginning of the 60s that to me is in the same category as Vin Scully, and that's Jaime Harin. What Jaime Harin had to go through in the sense that he wasn't even allowed to travel with the team when he was doing radio broadcasts, he had to depend on Vin Scully's broadcast. I, I don't think if anyone, I mean, wrap your head around the fact that he is broadcasting a game, listening to someone else describe it, and then he has to translate it. Uh, look, I, I, I don't know how much you go into Harin, but... For me, we're all about giving their flowers when their flowers are due. He just retired this season. Uh, To me, the Dodgers didn't do enough to honor him. I know other people feel maybe they did. But to me, this is a man who, and and you had mentioned uh, uh, also, especially after what happened with Chavez Ravine, Harin was crucial, especially when it came to Fernando Mania, in trying to mend the the schism between the Latino community and the Dodgers. He did. He did. And I remember talking to him, I think it was, was it 2018 or 2019? And he talked about how the fan base has transitioned and how you have Latinos in that ballpark, not only in the upper deck, not only in the bleachers, the pavilions, but all over the ballpark and, and how Latinos have be, be, become such a large part of the Dodgers fan base. And a lot of that is, is Jaime. A lot of it is Jaime. And what he, what he has done over the years uh, to popularize the Dodgers and baseball 
in the Latino community is it, it's indescribable. I mean, whatever flowers he received, and he did receive, he, 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 did, he did get a lot of love. Whatever it was, it wasn't enough. Yes, I agree with you. I, I would agree with you in that sense. So, uh, Jim, going into the 60s, all we ever heard, I mean, there was Drysdale. The Dodgers had other pitchers. But the one guy who had become a legend, a myth, especially to to us as we got older, was Sandy Koufax. Now, I never saw Sandy Koufax pitch. There's the videos there. But you see it, and it sounded like this guy had to win every game one to nothing, or the Dodgers had no chance uh, of winning. I mean, it was an era where you had other guys like Bob Gibson, the, the era of the pitcher. You know, are we ever really, I mean, we have Kershaw. And people have make the argument that maybe if you look at his numbers, his numbers are actually better than Koufax's. So is it is it Kershaw the greatest lefty? Or what were we missing out with Koufax? Like the fact that we didn't get to see him live, are we ever going to be able to give Koufax his, his due? I don't know. I mean, it, it, was, it was such a different era. And even in an era of the pitcher, the Dodgers were such a light-hitting team that it was like, if you got to run early in the game, you better make it stand up. And Sandy did more than more often than not. Uh, personal story, first game I ever went to, 1966. I remember the date. It was August 20th. They were playing the Cardinals. It was a Saturday afternoon. I missed Koufax by a day because he pitched that Sunday, and I think he got his 20th win that day. That was his final, final season. And as we know now um, – you know, he he knew even before that season began and before the big holdout, him and Don Drysdale, that that was going to be his last season because his elbow just could not could not stand up to it anymore. But the thing is that for those five, six seasons after he got after he figured it out and figured he didn't have to 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 grunt on every pitch and, and throw at max effort and he became a better pitcher, those five seasons, five or six seasons, made him a Hall of Famer because he was as dominant as anybody, I would say, in baseball history. When he took the mound, you knew the chances were good he was going to win. So when he chose to sat, to sit out because I, I believe it was, was it Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah? Yom Kippur. Yom, when he sat out for Yom Kippur, was that a big deal back then? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. It was, and it, it, it's it's something that's resonated with Jewish men and women and kids ever since. Because it's like, well, if this guy was willing to sit out a World Series game to honor to 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 observe Yom Kippur, then what's my excuse? And I'm not Jewish, so that's I'm I'm talking generally here. Right. But Sean Green years later used that as as his reason. He sat out Yom Kippur, and, and basically he was he was honoring the 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 holiday. He was also honoring Sandy because Sandy did it, and and it, it from a cultural standpoint. The, that resonated in, I, I got to believe that resonated in, in the Jewish community like nothing else. Because, again, 
you've got an opportunity to pitch in game one of the World Series, but your religion is more important. So, so that sends an unspeakable message. And I think the idea that, okay, Drysdale lost game one to the Twins, Sandy came back and lost game two, but then Sandy came back in game five, and, and I think he had a no-hitter for like five innings and beat the Twins. And then in game seven, that incomparable, incomparable game that he pitched against the Twins to win it 2 nothing and bring, bring the Dodgers their second World Series championship in three years, I, it was, it was kind of like the whole picture says, see, see, you can, you can sit out this holy day and it'll still work out. You know, I, 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 I find it really interesting. I mean, you, you write a book on the history of the Dodgers and really the significance uh, of this organization. I, I know the Yankees are always going to be the standard because they've won all the championships. But when you look at the social impact uh, that was made on the sport, I will argue, and, and you tell me if I'm wrong, Jim, that there has been another organization that has been more important to the social aspect uh, of not only the culture, but uh, uh, of this country than the Dodgers. I can't think of any in any sport. I think you're absolutely right. It's yeah. just the, the the and it's it's so varied and it's it's so many ways and it's so many cultures that are involved. Um and I don't know it's it it's it's sort of hard to describe in a few words. It took me 205,000 <laughs> and I still I'm still not sure I totally did it justice, but I tried to. But it, it it's like the history of this team and the threads that run through that history, you know, it, it, it's not just baseball, it's society, it's this country, it, it's our, our kind of sometimes staggered uh, uh, progress. I mean, it, it, the, the Dodgers, it sounds arrogant to say the Dodgers have had a hand in all this, but they've been part of all of it. And and I can't think of another team in another sport, or and even beyond sports, any entity that has had so much influence, so much impact, been impacted so much as the Brooklyn, Los Angeles, Dodgers, Robins, Bridegrooms, Superbas, you name it. <laughs> oh, by the way, before we forget. When the when the franchise finally settled on the name Dodgers, it came from the Baseball Writers Association chapter in New York. So it was it was us writers that came up with the name. So never forget that. There we go. So be nice to writers, everyone. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> be nice to writers. Uh, you know, it, it's funny, Jim, because I, my friend, you know, is from Chicago, born in Chicago, uh, on the outskirts, but he was more of a White Sox fan growing up but his father was a cubs fan and they i asked his father one day why were you a cubs fan and he said because the national league was the first team to embrace the minority player and because of that the cubs were in the national league they were the team that was closest to where i lived i i became a cubs fan and to me to hear him say that it's just like 
That's because of the team that I root for, the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Dodgers that yep. w- were the ones that were going to do that. So I, I, with the few minutes that we have left, I want to transition into the 80s and Fernando Mania. You had already mentioned it before, Jim. This is a topic on the show for us. We like to think that the majority of that stadium is Latinos. And, you know, at one point it was easy to say it was just a bunch of Mexicans at Dodger Stadium. But just this past season, they had a Salvadorian night. They had a Guatemalan night. And let me tell you, when they recognized the Guatemalans and the Salvadorans, they were so appreciative that they were given their own night, that they were finally recognized that it's, hey, it's not just Mexicans Mm -hmm. that support this team. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, there's a lot of different, you know, like you mentioned, cultures that support this team. The fact that that when Mookie signed with the Dodgers, many African-Americans were like, finally, we have someone that we can root for. Right. I mean, the Mexicans, we, we had Julio, and before Julio, we had Valenzuela. And, you know, growing up in the 60s, you mentioned it, probably all our Jewish-American friends felt the same way about Koufax. But when Fernando Mania came... The, the number of people that we've had on the show who tried to describe it to us always use the same words. I'm not doing it justice. You had to be there. There's just no way to describe it to you. And I would, I would agree with that 100%. And I was there. I mean, I was there at the, at, at the ground floor of this thing. And in fact, it goes back to the year before, 1980. He came up in September from San Antonio, from AA San Antonio. They, they skipped triple-a i mean they did they you know when the when the triple-a club was in albuquerque they didn't want any of their pitching prodigies pitching there because it would just ruin their confidence the way balls flew out of there so he came up from double-a in september i think he pitched like 10 or 11 scoreless innings he was so impressive he made such an impact that the dodgers they're, okay, they're three games behind going into the final weekend against Houston. They sweep that series at Dodger Stadium. So they have a one-game playoff on the Monday, and the clamor for Fernando to pitch that game, even though he was, he'd only pitched like 10 or 11 major league innings. People wanted him to pitch that game because they were impressed with, with what he had done and what they felt he could do. As it turned out, they used Dave Goltz, and he got slaughtered, and the Dodgers lost. And so fast forward to 1981, and he gets the start because Jerry Royce and Burt Hooten were injured. So he throws a shutout, and that started it. And I think it was the combination of, of, of here's this guy, this young guy. He seemed older than his birth certificate said. <laughs> uh, He's, he's kind of pudgy. He comes from this little village in Mexico that nobody knows how to pronounce the name. And it's like he's come out of nowhere. It's almost like E.T. just just showed up at Dodger Stadium and said, give me the ball, I'm going to throw a shutout. I mean, I, I know that's a little overstating it, but that was that was sort of the tenor of the time that that this is a guy from out of nowhere and he's doing this wonderful things and he's got this shutout streak going and and you know how does this happen and it was just fernando in, fernando contributed to a lot of that with the way he handled it because he was unflappable i mean nothing nothing 
affected him. And, and again, Jaime gets a lot of credit, as he should, for being the conduit between Fernando and those of us who don't speak Spanish. Because, I mean, and you, you did have to be there. But, I mean, the, the crowds in the ballparks on the night he pitched, it was, it was an event. It was, it was a happening. It was a party. And the other thing about that is that year, remember, baseball went on strike for like 70-some days at midseason. When they came back, you know, people were upset. They weren't going to go to games. I'll never go to another game again. You know how that works. Except that when Fernando pitched after the strike, the, the attendance was about 5,000 a game more. <laughs> and it and it remained that way all through the years. I mean, it, it was just it, it was a phenomenon. I don't think we'll ever see the like of it again. You know, some of it some of it was Fernando, some of it was the the time and the conditions involved. But it, again, there everybody you've talked to is right. You had to be there. I was there. I'm not sure I can do it justice. Let me ask you this, Jim. I mean, anybody who is a loyal listener to this show knows that we champion Valenzuela and especially having his number retired. We had Stan Caston on the show. Stan would not commit to it. What is it going to take for for that number to finally be retired? Because nobody wears it, Jim. They don't give out the number. Jerry Hairston was on the show, and Jerry Hairston told us, if they even tried to give me 34, I wouldn't wear it. Mm -hmm. Because I'd be like, are you kidding me? You know that's Fernando's number. Nobody should wear it. This whole, I mean, you have Junior Gilliam over there. I, like I said, we, we've talked to the Dodgers about this, and every reason that they give us just doesn't, it doesn't fly. It, it, it doesn't, you you owe it to him only because, yes, Fernando's not a Hall of Famer, but what his contributions, especially to that organization, are Hall of Fame worthy. And at least, the least that you could do is retire that jersey so every kid that goes to Dodger Stadium and sees that 34 over there, people will know, why was that number retired? Because that guy bridged the gap between Chavez Ravine and... And he brought fans back, like you said. Yes, yes. And I don't know what it would take to get the Dodgers to change their minds. Uh, you know, the Gilliam situation was unusual because it was sudden. I mean, suffered an aneurysm, passed away right before the World Series, and so I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the feeling was, and you know, I was around. I was covering the team then, but the the idea that. You know, hey, this is, I, you know, I don't understand, I don't get it why they haven't retired Fernando's number. Um, and, and like you say, it's been unofficially retired. Nobody's ever going to wear it again. So I, I don't understand. I suspect the feeling in certain quarters in the Dodge organization is, well, if we did it for him, then maybe we'd have to do it for Garvey. And maybe we'd have to do it for this guy and for this guy and for this guy. And we want to keep it exclusive. Okay, I get that. I understand. And I, I did a thing on retired numbers earlier this year. And most of the franchises here in L.A., in Southern California, 
they will retire numbers of Hall of Famers. So that's mm-hmm. that's sort of the unofficial qualification to get your mon- number retired. But I would say that community impact should be equal to whether you had a Hall of Fame career on the field. And in Fernando's case, it should be a no-brainer. His, his number should be retired post-haste. And again, I don't know what it will take to convince management, but if, if, there, ever, if there ever is a test case, he's the guy. You know, there's so much we could talk about, uh, Jim, and, and, and everyone, please go out there and get Jim's book. But there is something that, I, look, we could do a whole show just on the 88 team, right? We could do, I can come back anytime you want. <laughs> but I do I do want to pick your brain on this. And, you know, for the most part, we we've, we cherry-picked all the great moments in Dodger history. But there's a, there's a period that's very dark, in my opinion, and that's the McCord era. And I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. I know eventually the guy ran out of money, and that's why the guy got ran out of town. But the fans stopped showing up. Mm-hmm. And for all the grief that Dodger fans get for showing up in the third inning and leaving in the seventh, that Dodger fans don't care, I feel that Dodger fans played a huge part in running that guy out of town. That's absolutely and, correct. And if that guy even, I, I think he, I don't know, he might still be in LA, but if that guy, that guy never shows his face in anything because he knows he's going to get it. I can't think of anyone that has been as big a villain as McCord. What do you remember about that era? Because for me, Major League Baseball should have never allowed him to buy the team in the first place. That is, an, that is absolutely true. I mean, basically he, he bought it with no money. As, as I kind of detail in the book, and you're right, the fans voted with their wallets. They stopped showing up, and I think that ultimately led to the bankruptcy and to to McCourt selling the team out of bankruptcy, especially since MLB had established that he and Jamie had taken like $180 million out of the team for their own personal use. I mean... Basically, he plundered the team. And I remember, and I think I mentioned in the book, there was a Saturday afternoon game in, I think it was 2011. They were playing the Padres, and the announced attendance was like 27,000. There may have been 10,000 in the park. Um, And, you know, the the guys on the national telecast mentioned it, and, and they mentioned what an embarrassment it was. And I think things like that finally got Bud Selig's attention. And the other thing about that is that when McCourt was doing all this stuff, the first few years, I mean, you know, we were starting to see blogs and podcasts and what have you. And we're starting to see fans and, and ordinary people who had a platform to give their opinions and I think most of them understood when McCourt was gifted the team, basically, that, hey, there's something here that's fishy. There's, there's something here that's just not right. And as they got deeper and deeper into his ownership, into his and Jamie's ownership, it pretty much was proved correct. And then when they, uh, they split and it was announced right before the 
NLCS in 2009. And then all the stuff starts coming out about, you know, <laughs> The, the, the all the all the stuff in the divorce trial, yeah. it, 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 everything that came out made it more and more uncomfortable for for Frank to own the team. I remember, I think it was in two thousand. It was in two thousand ten, and the Dodgers were playing an afternoon game against the Phillies at home at Dodger Stadium. I was covering that game, and it was at at the same time that the divorce trial was going on. And that afternoon, Frank was supposed to take the stand. By this time, Twitter was up and running. There were people live tweeting what Frank was saying from the stand. And that was a story I had some fun with, because that afternoon, Roy Oswald, who was a guy that the Dodgers could have traded for but didn't because Frank didn't want to trade for somebody unless the other team paid most of his salary. So he went to Philadelphia help them win, what have you. He's pitching against the Dodgers. He's beating them. So sort of juxtaposing the, the two things, what's happening on the field and then what's happening in divorce court downtown, and it, was, it was like an illustration of this is what's wrong with this team and this organization. So, I mean, it, it's just, it, it. you're right. It was a very dark period in Dodger history. And... Hopefully we'll never have that again. But, but the whole thing was Frank saying, well, why should I spend $160 million? I can spend $80 million and win the division. So we've, we've, gotten, we've gotten past that, believe me. Yes. And, and that being said, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't get your thoughts on the Dodgers winning 111 games this season and going out in, in the way they went, Jim. I mean, I know Dave Roberts has been vilified. I've seen people in that organization take heat this offseason that I haven't seen before. And, and mm -hmm. Andrew Friedman is one of them. This is 10 years now that you've been in the postseason. Nine out of 10 times you've lost. The fans are pissed. I'm not going to say they're as pissed as they were in the McCord era. But I have never seen the fans this pissed and the fact that it's like it's it's getting old. And I feel that it's going to take a while to get over this. And I'm very curious as to what's going to happen next season, because I think you're going to have a series of Dodger fans that are just going to be like, whatever, this team's just going to lose anyways. Yeah, I mean, it's almost gotten it's almost reached that point already that people get fatalistic when the playoffs arrive because of all that's happened over the last decade and the idea that they're going to get there and somebody's going to make a stupid pitching decision and they're going to blow it um, or decisions. And it, it, it's always been my feeling. And I know Friedman denied it at his end of season press conference, but it's always been my feeling and it's been borne out, especially the last few years that most of those decisions come from up top. Um, and there are, there are occasional glimpses into the process. I mean, the game five against the Giants last year, when they uh, decided to use Corey Knebel as an opener and not bring Urias in until the third inning, and Dave Roberts acknowledged that that was made at the tippy top of the organization. You know, all, all roads lead to Andrew Friedman. So... And I know that's the way a lot of organizations do their business these days. 
I just think that trying to script a game plan and saying, okay, no way, no how, your pitcher can't pitch to the order a third time and whatnot, it doesn't make sense. And you go back to game four in San Diego last weekend, Tyler Anderson was was pitching great through five innings. Why are you taking him out? Why you know why why does he have to leave after five innings just because it's the Padres order is coming up for the third time? I think if you let him go at least six, then you have a better chance of, of managing your bullpen to the point where that doesn't happen. And the other thing is, okay, where was Blake Trinan? Where was Dustin May? I mean, were these guys guys hurt? Were they just passed over? I mean, what's what's going on? There's a lot here that still needs to be explained. And to blame Dave Roberts for it all, I think, you know, he, 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 will, he will accept a share of the blame, and he probably deserves a share of the blame, but it's not all on him. And if they, if they had made a trade for a pitcher and there were p- trades available at the deadline, then maybe they would have had enough in the way of reinforcements that this might not have happened. So winning 111 games is great, but you've got to be firing on all cylinders. And maybe in the future, it's going to come to where, okay, we're, we're going to go all out to win the division, but we're not going to try and obliterate everybody. We're going to instead make sure we have our ducks in a row for when the real season starts. It's almost like you, you almost have to, uh, especially with more more teams in the playoffs now, you almost have to treat it like an NBA team does. That okay, we're getting into we're, we're getting into playoff position, but the important thing the important games come in October, and that that's that's the only that's the only way I can think of that this is going to be solved. That it's it's going to have to be an attitude adjustment where. You're looking for October. You're looking to October, like AJ Preller did. We laughed at him when he made all those trades at the deadline, but guess what? It worked. So you, until this last weekend, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so you the the whole uh, throwing Dave Roberts under the bus by Friedman, yeah, yeah, that dog don't hunt for you then, huh, Jim? No, absolutely not. And 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 I wrote it the day after. It was an organizational failure. So, so let me ask you this. When he, I, I just, I'm very curious why no one asked him this, or maybe that's the next follow up question. If he always says that there is no narrative, or he always addresses the narrative that who's making the pitching decisions and it's always Dave, well, if we have the same result every time, why don't you fire him? Doesn't that mean you're incompetent? Because the definition of crazy is doing the same thing over every year and expecting different results. If what you're saying is that Roberts is making these decisions and every year Roberts is making the wrong pitching decisions, isn't that cause for him to get fired? I think you just answered your own question (laughs) that he's basically betrayed that it's not all on Dave Roberts. Yeah. But so, I mean, is ownership, I mean, will ownership, you saw what a perfect example was the Phillies. The Phillies blew out their manager in the middle of the season. And look, they're in the World Series now. 
Mm-hmm. And yes, it's random. I don't think anybody could have predicted the Phillies going on the, on the run that they needed. But you mentioned it too, the, the, the scripting, having the plan. Is that what's missing from the Dodgers is going off script? I feel like the one year they did go off script in 2020, they it, it paid off for them. Mm-hmm. Although it helped that the other manager made up one. <laughs> the, the other manager stuck to the script. <laughs> yep, exactly. Well, it's, it's interesting when you talk about the Phillies because I was listening to an interview yesterday with uh, Jason Stark of The Athletic. And, you know, he's based in Philadelphia, so he sees the Phillies a little more than he does other teams. And the point he made was that under Joe Girardi, there was a lot of pressure. On Girardi, there was a lot of pressure on the team. They were playing tight. They weren't. They, they didn't seem to be enjoying themselves. You have the managerial change. New guy comes in, a little looser. Guys, guys relaxed a little bit, and you got to be relaxed to play the game at the highest level. And for for whatever reason, not all not all managerial not all managerial changes work as we saw in Anaheim. But this one did, and that's why they're in the World Series. I don't think, I don't think Dave Roberts deserves to be fired. I don't think it would do any good. I think what Roberts brings to that clubhouse, and one of the things he brings to that clubhouse is the ability to sell players on the idea that, okay, maybe you're not going to be hitting in the same spot in the order every day, or you're not going to be playing the, posi- the same position, that you've got to be flexible and versatile and, 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 able able to change when you need to change and i think that was one of the selling points originally and it's one of the things that that has made him a very good manager that he has that connection with his players and he can sell them on those things but when the same thing you're right when the same thing keeps happening in october you know whose fault is this is it the manager if it is the manager then don't you make a change and if it's not the manager, then maybe it's time for the front office to kind of step back and and take the training wheels off. <laughs> and there you have it. Uh, so we're going to end the show the way we always end the show, Jim. Uh, you know, we're we're about the Dodgers on the Bleed Lows podcast. We're about Los Angeles and all its culture. And part of that culture is taco culture. So we need to know, Jim, what is your favorite taco and where do you go to get that taco? Well, you know what? I live in the Inland Empire, so I don't know if that disqualifies me from this conversation (laughs) or not. There's a place out here called the Green Onion in Moreno Valley, and that would would be my go-to. We don't get there very often, but that would be my go-to. What what do you get? What kind of taco is it? Is it a, a steak taco, carne asada? What? It's steak taco. Okay. Steak, steak taco. Let me get that out correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Very well. So there you have it. Jim Alexander, the the author of the new book, Dodgers and Informal History from Flatbush to Chavez Ravine. Uh, Jim, where can our listeners get this book? Online. Uh Evan, uh, I was saying before, my, my publisher basically does not ship books to bookstores unless there are specific orders. So if you want a hands-on approach, go to your 
independent bookstore or go to Barnes and Noble or what have you and tell them you want this book. Otherwise, you can order it online. It's on Amazon.com. It's on BarnesandNoble.com. Most of the independent booksellers in Southern California have it listed on their websites. So if they don't have it, then ask for it. But by all means, please, please buy it. <laughs> yes, there I don't you know have. If, I don't know if authors plead like that, but I'm <laughs> pleading, okay? Please. I think there you have it. it. There you have it. Look, if you're a new Dodger fan, if you're an old Dodger fan, go get Jim's book and you'll be able to see that the reaction that we had to this postseason, it's part of Dodger history. This is what this is what Dodger fans do. The team was known as bums. We're bums for supporting them, but they're our team. We can talk smack on them. Nobody else can. It's us. It's dependent on us. Learn about the Dodgers' history. Learn about how important this franchise, even though they let us down every year on the baseball field, they are still a very important franchise to to, to Major League Baseball, to society, to the country. So uh, there you have it, Jim. Can't thank you enough. We'd love to do it again. There's so much more stuff we didn't get to that uh, we'd love to pick your brain on. So um, that's going to do it for this episode of the Bleed Lows podcast. Uh, remember, guys, thanks to our sponsor. Uh, uh, we want to make sure that if, you, if you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, subscribe to the podcast. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You, If you want a, the audio version, you got the podcast. If you want to see our beautiful faces, you can go <laughs> to our YouTube channel and, and see the reaction of our guests when we ask stupid questions. So subscribe to, to our YouTube channel. Subscribe to the podcast. We're the Bleedlos Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Jim, uh, do you have any social handles where our listeners can follow you? I am on Twitter at, at Jim underscore Alexander. All right. So perfect. You can get me there. All right. So that's going to do it for this episode, folks. And uh, thank you to our sponsor, Ben Online, where the game starts. Nos vemos para la próxima. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube.